Southbridge. We are very glad that you're here. It's exciting, isn't it? People's lives being changed. That's a, a great thing. And I want to invite all of you to the baptism service where these folks are going to get dunked in some water and let you know that they're publicly wanting to follow Jesus. You're all invited. We're going to be at the New Life Camp. After this service, we'll probably start having people in the water around 1240-ish. And you can get directions to New Life Camp on your way out today. There'll be some people at the Connections Kiosk that will give you those on the way out. This is a great time. If, you are, if you've never been to one of these before, you need to come today. We're going to have a picnic afterwards too, so you can just blame it on that you were getting free food. Okay, so come over there and uh, we'll give you some food. But this is a great time to celebrate something significant that's happened in these folks' lives. Those of you who have been baptized before, you know this is a great day. And uh, we want you to be there and encourage them, um, to challenge them perhaps. And maybe you can speak into their lives in some way. But then also... Um, for some of you, maybe you've never done this before and you don't know what to expect. And you've been wondering if you should. This would be a great time to test it out and just see what it's like and uh, what we do at these times of baptism. But really what we're doing, we're celebrating. Someone's trusted Christ as their Savior already, and now they're making a public profession of their faith. You don't get baptized before you trust Jesus because how can you say you're identifying with someone that you haven't placed your faith in? And so what you're doing with baptism is you're saying, I want to identify with Jesus. I want the world to know that I identify with Jesus. And so like we see in the scriptures, after someone trusts Christ, then they make this profession of faith. And so we encourage you to do that if, if you're in a situation where you're interested in that for the next time, you can check it on your connection card this morning and just drop it in the box in your well. And we welcome you and invite each one of you to come after the service to our baptism time. And today what we're going to do in this service right now is we're going to continue in the series we've been doing called Mission. Now, we've been doing this series for four weeks now. This is the first week we're going to actually talk about the mission. <laughs> if you look at the breakdown of how the messages went, the first week we talked about our vision. And we talked about our desire to reach the city for Christ. We started using some new language with 10X and talked about some of the things that were happening in the, the days ahead where we asked God to multiply our impact 10 times what it already is in this city. And in the last two weeks, I've talked about our new values. And we've taken one week on each one of our new values. We have new, more simplified values, easy words that start with an E, encounter, embrace, and engage. In the first week, we talked about encountering the living God, that we see him accurately, and then we respond to him appropriately. It's really what worship is. And then we talked about embracing the one another's of Scripture last week. We talked about embracing one another. And what you have there is really like the fuel to our faith, encountering God, it's because of our relationship with him that we do everything that we do. And then there's a maintenance to our faith where we share with one another, we care for one another, we pray with one another, we study the scripture, we grow together. And then today we're going to talk about engaging our world for Christ, that third value. The other two are great, but without the third one, we miss the point. Engaging our world for Christ. And I'm going to pray and we'll jump into the message this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence and are humbled that you, a holy and righteous God, would let us speak to you. And that because of your son, Jesus Christ, you do provide a way, the only way, but you provide a way for us to come into your presence. And we are so thankful, those of us who know your son, Jesus, that we have life, that we have truth, that we know that way. I pray this morning, if there's any that do not know your son, Jesus, that today would be the day that they would step into the kingdom. Today would be the day they would receive your forgiveness, that they would accept your son, Jesus, to be savior, that they would experience your grace, that they would know what it is, that you would just have some word that I say, Help it click for them. Help the, the light switch go on and for them to see what it is to have a relationship with you. I pray you'd anoint my lips, that you'd speak through me. I pray for the ears of those that are believers this morning, that you'd have them hear exactly what you want. Encouragement, rebuke, challenge, correction, whatever it is, Father God, that you would do those things through your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I already know that I'm going to say something controversial today. It was proven fact in the first service that I'm going to make a statement that will stir some people up. It could potentially offend some of you. I know it will be controversial, okay? Just to be given that disclaimer. Before I say it, let me set it up a little bit. If you've been here the last few weeks, I've shared a little bit of the story of God moving in our hearts to come plant this church, my wife and I. And for those of you who didn't know, we had never lived here 
in Raleigh, Durham before we had come to, to plant this church. And so we had no idea what it was to really embrace this culture, to really know what it is to dive in and become a part of this city. And we read information about the place and made some friends and did some visits, but you don't really know what it's like to be here until you live here. A couple of the families that we became friends with when we first got here were specifically identified with a school in town. And because they liked that school, we kind of said, well, we'll you know, hope that they win their games and when other teams lose games, we'll root against them and all that stuff. And then I want to let you in on a very private conversation. My wife gave me permission to share with you, but a private conversation that we had this fall. People are driving around us in these cars, got flags on their cars, all this kind of stuff. We look at each other and we start talking and say, if we're going to be here and raise our kids here for the next 30 or 40 years... We need a team. Like, and it needs, like, it's part, they're gonna, they don't know about these teams from other places we've lived. Okay, this is their culture. This is where they've been. We need to pick a place, and there's got to be a reason. And we kind of picked a place on paper, but there's nothing in our heart about it. There's no, nothing passionate about the team that we have. And so here's my controversial statement. My wife and I are going to open our recruitment to a new North Carolina team. Pin drop. And we've narrowed it down to three schools. And it might be one of your schools. We're going to pick between the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, to potentially be our team. All right, got a couple UNCers here. We're going to pick between NC State, the Wolfpack, and the third and probably obvious choice, Meredith College. We will decide if they are potential. I'll get laughed at if I pick them, apparently. So they're out. I can't pick Duke. My brother-in-law likes them. I have to give him a hard time. So that's not an option. It's not because I don't love you. Are there any Duke fans here today? All right, all things all, man, I got it. Verses running through my head, got it. Yeah, we love you, we're glad you're here. Blue Devils, I can't pick that team, okay? So, we're going to pick a team, we're going to pick a team to root for. It's part of loving our city, it's part of embracing our culture. And there's got to be some passion behind it. Most of you have passion for your team. You have passion, you NC State fans got passion? All right, UNCers, you got some passion? A little louder, oh, rowdy and proud. They were golf clap first service, they're rowdy in the second, all right. All right, I'm picking, still picking, so you're helping me, you're recruiting me here in this deal. Now, why do you like your team? Do you, do you know? I mean, if you don't know why you like your team, if you don't have any passion for your team, why would I ever have passion for your team? And if you don't know why you like your team, why would I ever like your team? And so if I ask you, you know, UNC fans, why do you like your team? And you might think of that. And see, state fans, you, why do you like your team? There was something that pulled you in, and maybe it was you grew up in it, or maybe you went there, maybe there was something that just triggered, and something about being around the people or the culture. And see, state fans, why? Why do you pick that? I've heard a lot about tailgating being great. I've heard a lot of those things, and you know, 66 to zero, that's pretty compelling yesterday. UNC, all that stuff. You got. Why do you like your team? You know what's interesting to me about teams is that you never have to tell someone to talk about their team. I didn't have to tell you to, to cheer out when I told you about what team I was thinking about. You just do. You're, you're passionate about your team. You naturally talk about your team. Why is that? And you know what the answer is? It's very interesting to me, especially as a Christian sports fan, is that we naturally talk about what we love. And, and it doesn't matter if it's UNC or NC State or even Duke, perhaps Meredith. Maybe you don't even like any of those schools. Maybe you're like a Steelers fan. Or, or, or maybe I saw heads go up. I know some. You might be a Redskins fan. Maybe you're a Cowboys fan. Maybe you're somebody else. Maybe it's a different sport. Maybe you like polo. I don't know. But you like something, and, and you talk about your team naturally because you love them. And maybe it's not sports for you. Maybe you just had a baby, and it's kids. And so when some people start talking about kids, I don't have to tell you to start talking about kids. You just start talking about kids. Or maybe you're a foodie, and you like to eat food. And so people start talking about, you'd want to talk about the best food you've ever eaten. Or maybe you like to cook. Or perhaps you're like a computer guy, and you think in code and numbers and all kinds of stuff. And people start talking about this stuff. You light up. You talk about the things that you love naturally. We talk about the things that we love. 
And so as a Christian sports fan, I asked myself the question, so do we talk about Jesus? Do you, do you talk about Jesus naturally? Because the Bible says there's a couple things that's kind of a big deal in the Bible, if you read them, that we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, passion, all of our soul, who we are, all of our mind, it consume our thoughts, and all of our strength, physical, tangible ways that we'd actually do this. And it also says it's kind of a big deal, too, that we love other people. And so as we talk about engaging our world for Christ, that's what we're really talking about, is whether we love God and whether we love people. And so do you naturally talk about Jesus? Not because you have to, not because you're commanded to, not because, but do you love God? Do you love other people? Do you want to engage your world for Christ? So that's the very reason why we're here. And it's not to diminish the other values we've talked about, encountering God, seeing him accurately, worship, it's an amazing thing, it's the fuel to our faith, embracing one another, very important. It's like the maintenance to our faith, that we care for one another, that we pray with one another, all those things that we're growing in that relationship. But you know what? Without the third one, the other two miss the point. Engaging our world for Christ, that's the job, that's the mission, that's why we're still here on earth. John MacArthur says it like this. If you don't know John MacArthur, he's a very conservative guy, loves the Bible, loves the church. He's not diminishing anything else, but look at what he says. If God's primary purpose for the saved, that's people that have trusted Christ as their Savior. It's kind of Christian terminology, but it means someone who's come to the place where they've been reconciled with God. If God's primary purpose for the saved were loving fellowship, hanging out together, he would take believers immediately to heaven, where spiritual fellowship is perfect, unhindered by sin, disharmony, or loneliness. Another option, if his primary purpose for the saved or the learning of his word. Well, that seems like a really good Christian thing to do, right? If that was the primary purpose, though, he would also take believers immediately to heaven, where his word is perfectly known and understood. There aren't going to be questions, and these three people think this, and four think that, and I think it's this, and you don't have to have any of that. It's known perfectly and understood perfectly. And if God's primary purpose for the saved were to give him praise or make great music or whatever it is you'd want to say there, he would again take believers immediately to heaven, where praise is perfect and unending. There's only one reason the Lord allows his church to remain on earth. It's to seek and save the lost. To engage our world for Christ. That's what we're going to talk about today. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament, Matthew. And we're going to be in chapter 28. I invite you to turn with me if you brought a copy of the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to read the last few verses, verses 16 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, we give them away for free at our Connections Kiosk. We'd love for you to have one. We put all the verses up on the screen, but we want you to have a copy of the Scripture, one, so you can use it through the week. But two, when I'm reading something, you might want to look at the verses around it. See what's happening. Learn more about what's going on here. And speaking of that... It'd be really easy for me to jump right into this passage and start reading verse 16, but I don't want to do that because I don't want us to miss the gravity of what's taking place here. Because if I just told you the context, the context kind of goes like this. God saw that there was a problem on earth, it was sin, so he sends his son Jesus, he becomes human, he lives a perfect life, he dies on the cross, he raises from the dead, and then before he goes to ascend back into heaven, he tells us to do this, and that would be true. But we'd miss the weight of what's happened here. Imagine for a moment what it would be like to be one of his 11 closest followers. One of them's no longer around. He's committed suicide. He's dead. So you're dealing with the trauma that one of your friends has just killed himself. He's also betrayed your master, and you also were unfaithful to your master. He's your Lord. He's your teacher. He's your rabbi. He's also your best friend. And he's been murdered, and you ditched him. And so you've got the grief of a loss. You've got the confusion, and now he's raised from the dead. Like, what, what is all this stuff? And all the crazy stuff that took place when he died, this wasn't normal. And what had happened here really was that God did look at the earth and he saw sin and that was a problem. But you know what else was a problem? His sin always has to be met with wrath. And so that wrath has to be poured out on us. And other than us getting wiped out, he has to come up with a solution. And he comes up with a solution that you and I would never think of. 
Do you know what we think of to try and solve our problem with God? We'll try harder. We'll be more disciplined. We'll be more religious. We'll go to more religious events. We'll start reading a book that says Holy Bible. And so we'll learn this information. And we'll start studying. We'll go to Bible studies. And we'll try to become more moral. We'll be nice people and try to have more good stuff than bad stuff. And that's the kind of stuff we come up with. He comes up with a solution that says all those things are wrong. And it's a solution that you and I would never think of. He decides to send his son, who's fully God, into earth and make him human. You would have thought of that? (laughs) Are you kidding? And then as he becomes man, he lives a perfect life. Have you ever met a man? Have you ever met a man who didn't mess up? Women, you can laugh now. I am one. I can't even imagine that. That alone would have been an incredible accomplishment. Jesus lives a perfect life. He's tempted in every way, just as we're tempted, but he never sins. And because he's fully God, and because he never sins, he's able to pay for our sins. So he goes to the cross, and he takes upon not only our sin, God's wrath, the full wrath of the Father. He solves the problem through his love. And when he dies, it gets weird. Go back one chapter. There's only one person that's ever died like this before. It's unique. He's on the cross in chapter 27. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then verse 50, it says, and when Jesus cried out again, after he cried out that time, just in a loud voice, probably a yell, He gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. It's symbolic that now there's access to God and it happens through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. That's the only way we get to him is through this death, through the sacrifice of Jesus. And it says the earth shook and the rocks split. You think that was coincidence that happened? There's darkness that's covered the earth too. We didn't read that verse. This is strange. But then look at this next verse. We don't read this one very often. The tombs broke open. And bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. What? And they came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Okay, that's weird. I don't know why there aren't a bazillion Christian fiction books written about this verse. Can you imagine for a moment that someone you know, someone you love, we were talking about this in my group, with the e-group that we have, and we were talking about this passage of Scripture, and somebody said, can you imagine if your dad died like 10 years ago and then was knocking on your front door? But the scriptures don't say anything about these people. Do you know why? Because what happens next is even crazier. God dies. Look at it in the next part of the passage. When the centurion, and the centurion is someone who had seen hundreds, maybe thousands of people die. So death wasn't a big deal to them. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. And they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. This was different. Can you imagine being those 11 men? And that was your best friend and your Lord and master and rabbi and teacher and you banked everything in your life on his life and now he's dead. And then you know the rest of the story. If you've ever been to church on Easter, maybe that's the only time you've come. And you know the Easter story is that these women go to the tomb and then the tomb is empty and we celebrate and the tomb is empty. How confusing would that be? What do you mean? He's back. Now what happens? Now what do I do? In the midst of all of that, he tells these women, you go get my brothers, these guys, gather them together and send them to a mountain in Galilee. And this is about 25 to 30 days after Jesus raises from the dead. And look at what happens in verse 16. And the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So they obey. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. They saw him accurately. They respond appropriately. But some doubted. In verse 18, and then Jesus came to them and said, all authority... And heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, you can bank on it, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, can you imagine for a moment what it was like to be those 11 men? The loss you've experienced, and now he's back. But it's not just like, and everything's great. This has never happened before. There's dead people walking around towns, the earthquake, the temple thing tore, even the centurion thinks he's the son of God. You see him, and by this point, the disciples have seen him. All of them have seen him at least once. Thomas has even been able to touch the scars in his hands. Peter's, this is probably the fourth time Peter's seen him. So somewhere between your second time and your fourth time is seeing Jesus resurrected, and now he's going to tell you now what you're supposed to do, what your job is, what your mission is, why you're still, he's going to leave, and he's going to leave them here And there's a reason why we're still here. And there's a reason why they stayed here. Because he has a job for us, a mission for us, a plan for us. You see, God's people are people with a plan. Always have been, always will be. As long as we're here on earth, God's people are people with a significant plan. That's our first point. As God's people, we are people with a significant plan. Now, a lot of people live life like there's not a plan, like it just, stuff just kind of happens. And let me tell you, most significant things that will ever happen in human history are the result of a plan. And sometimes it doesn't work out exactly the way you think the plan's going to work out, but there, people are working a plan. You know, you just wake up one day and, like, man walks on the moon. There was a plan to get man on the moon. You know, Olympic athletes, they don't just, I think I'm going to go run a race and run a race and win a gold medal. That's not how it happens. There was a plan, they're working the plan, and then maybe they accomplish something significant. Sometimes we live like, because maybe it's because we watch sitcoms that last for like 30 minutes and all of a sudden problems are solved and things just fell into place. Or you watch a movie and a lot of times movies portray like things just work out. Like you're running and you're going to jump out of a window and they're conveniently located a nice dumpster there. And you ever notice the garbage bags are all filled with like feather pillows, right? <laughs> that doesn't happen in real life. Okay, if you're running from the bad guys and you're going to jump out of a window, say said conveniently located dumpster is there. Somebody just threw away a weight bench, okay? That's what's really going to happen. There's a TV in there or like an old rocking chair. That's how life really works. The reason why there's feather pillows there, somebody had a plan. And it seems like coincidence. So they planned it out. In fact, they have insurance on it. Months ago, they bought the insurance for that jump, and that's going to work, and they're going to get away from the bad guys. It's all planned out. See, God has a plan for you as a follower of Jesus. Have you ever heard that statement before? God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for you. You heard that? You ever wonder, what is it? Somebody tell me what it is? Maybe you've heard Jeremiah 29, 11 quoted before. Isn't that a great verse? I know, it's God. I know the plans I have for you. You do? Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Awesome. God's not going to hurt us. That's what we learned from that verse. Can you tell me what the plan is, though? Because he says, I know the plans I have for you. You ever read the Old Testament? You see guys like Moses, and they have that burning bush experience, and God tells them what he wants them to do. Tells Abraham, here's, here's my plan. You leave and I want you to go. You're going to go to a land. You don't know where you're going. Isn't that amazing to get that? Joshua, he gets a plan. God directly speaks to him, tells him the plan. Wouldn't it be great to have that? We do. It's right here in this passage. Here's the plan. If you're a follower of Jesus, I'm not speaking to those of you who are yet to trust Jesus today. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's God's plan for your life. It's make disciples. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to pray about it. You don't have to wonder about it. It's not even mysterious. It's right here in black and white. Make disciples. That's God's plan for you. The only question is, will we obey it? And the real question in our heart is, if not, why wouldn't we? And I think that's more of a heart question than it is a tactical question of fulfilling a task. Do we love him? We naturally talk about what we love, who we love. Do we love others? Well, of course we would want to tell them, right? Think what it was like for these 11 guys. All that confusion, all that fear, 
all those things. We know enough about them to know these guys weren't the sharpest dudes. They were, they were fishermen, they were tax collectors, they were social outcasts. They were, these guys weren't guys that were valedictorians in their class. Jesus was the rabbi and they're grown men. If they were the sharpest guys, they would have already been picked by somebody else to be a rabbi when it comes to them. These are average guys that lack courage, that haven't been faithful. They betrayed Jesus, some of them. They weren't there when the worst moments of his life took place. But then Jesus says, you go tell my guys to gather together and they show up. At least they show up. We could bash them, say how we wouldn't be like them, how we wouldn't want to be like them. Maybe we look at them and say, yeah, they're failures and I'm a failure and you identify with them. But at least they show up. There's something to say about presence. And then look what happens. And when they saw Jesus, they knew they were going to see Jesus. They've seen Jesus before, but when they see him accurately, they fall down and they worship. They do the exact same thing that the women do up in verse 9. If you brought a copy of the scriptures, you can look up at verse 9 and see that the, when the women so went to the empty tomb, and then they leave, and then Jesus appears, they fell down, they clasped his feet. They fall prostrate on the ground, and, and who knows what's happening there. Some of them are probably weeping, weeping tears of joy. You ever have a, where a bunch of emotions build up, and then all of a sudden the tears come out? It's probably some of that that's happening. Some of them might be shouting out, hallelujah, praise the Lord, praise God. You're here. You're still alive, and I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense, all that stuff, but you're here. And for the disciples, they have a similar type of experience where they see him. They've seen him before, but they see him now, and they fall down, and they worship him. You know, there's only one other place in the Scriptures where the disciples are recorded as worshiping Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew chapter 14, what happens is that they're in a storm, and they're out on the boat. They think they're going to die. And then Jesus comes walking up on water. And he tells Peter to get out of the boat. And Peter starts to walk to him. When they get back in the boat, it says that they worshipped him. At that moment, they probably worshipped him because from their perspective, he just saved their lives. And now they see him and they worship him because now they see he's got power over life and over death and over sin and over everything. And they fall down and they begin to worship him. But look at the next part of the verse. But some doubted. How's that even possible? How can you be worshipping him him and simultaneously be doubting. And why did Matthew put this in here? I mean, if, if the gospel is written to convince people to trust Jesus, wouldn't you just paint like a rosy story? You don't want to put stuff about doubt in there. Why does he put this? And We've already got the Thomas thing and the gospel of John, and we already know we're past that because Thomas at this point has already touched the scars of Jesus. They're not doubting that it's Jesus. They're not doubting that the resurrection has taken place. This is 25 to 30 days later. They've seen him multiple times. That doesn't even make sense. Why does Matthew put this here? Maybe it's because of what was going on in Matthew's heart. It's one of the things I love about Scripture. Is it's so real and it's honest. And Some of them, they were doubting. What does that mean? Well, there's only one other place in the whole New Testament where this word doubt is used. Interestingly enough, it's in the same passage, the only other place where we see them worshiping Jesus is in Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew chapter 14, what happens is they're in this boat and the storm's crashing down. And if you ever heard this sermon before or read this passage before, the boat, they think they're going to die. And they look out and they think they see a ghost and they realize it's Jesus. And Jesus, or Peter says to Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come. <laughs> He's really trusting this ghost if he doesn't think it's Jesus. And he says, come, come. Peter gets off the boat. He starts to walk towards Jesus, unlike any human has ever experienced before because of his faith, he's walking towards Jesus. And the NIV says, but then he doubted. And he begins to sink. He doubts, and if you know the message, you know the passage, what ends up happening, he doubts because he starts looking at his circumstances. He takes his eyes off. It wasn't because he didn't believe that was Jesus. 
In fact, we give him a hard time, but you know what Peter does? When he starts to sink, he immediately cries out to Jesus to save him. That's the right answer, by the way. And Jesus saves him and takes him back into the boat. When he says he doubted there, do you know what this word means? It doesn't mean disbelief. It doesn't mean disbelief in either one of these passages. It means he hesitated. He was hesitant. Peter began to walk on water and then he hesitated. These men, they worshiped Jesus, but they were hesitant in their heart. What was that hesitancy? We know it wasn't because they doubted or didn't believe in Jesus. We know it wasn't because they didn't think that was really him or they didn't think he really raised from the dead. So what is it? And if you look at the full context here, I believe the reason why they were hesitant, the reason why they doubted, is because they doubted themselves. They didn't think they had the ability to fulfill what God was going to tell them to do. They didn't believe their gifts. They didn't believe their talents. They didn't believe that they could do it. They knew, I know who I am, was what Peter was thinking. I betrayed you. I wasn't there for you. I say big talk, and then I don't do it. You know, Thomas, he knows that he's a doubter. He knows he has a little bit of faith. He's got other people in there. They know what their failures are. They know what their sin problems are. They know what their past has been like. And then now Jesus is back, and it's awesome, and they worship him. It's like us singing, you are stronger. I am not good in your heart. And thinking the same thoughts at the same time. We do that. We all do that. It's part of being human. You ever been there before? I'm going to challenge you today. Engage your world for Christ. And some of you are going to think to yourself, well, that's not really my thing. I'm more of a singer. <laughs> I'm more of a, like, a fellowship kind of person. Or I'm more of a, I'm just not good at that. Or maybe it gets even more real and you start thinking to yourself, well, if I, the people that I would share, they know I'm a hypocrite. Like, they've seen me lose my temper. Or maybe like, welcome to my world. I've lost my temper with them. <laughs> and now I'm supposed to share my faith with them? Well, they don't want to listen to me. And look at what Jesus says next in this passage to these guys that are doubting just like us. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Why does Jesus talk about authority here? A lot of times we jump right into the Great Commission. Do you ever ask yourself, why does he talk about authority? We know it's not Jesus doesn't have authority issues. He's not just trying to show off. You know, you could think to yourself as you read this passage, well, Jesus, it's really clear. You're awesome. They're not. <laughs> we got that. And so the disciples, they're supposed to just think, oh, yeah, you rose yourself from the dead. You're amazing. We weren't even there to see it. We stink. Now you're just showing off. Tell us about your authority. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is doing. Maybe some of us read this passage like Jesus is just being that parent that doesn't really have an answer for the questions. You ever, you ever had that before? You ask your parent a question, you know, eat all your vegetables. Why should I eat my vegetables? Because I said so. So just appealing to authority here. I, just, I don't have to have a reason for you. I'm just going to tell you why. You just do this because I'm the parent, you're the kid. And so some of us act like the Great Commission is essentially this. You go, eat your vegetables, make disciples, because I said so. But what's the context here? These guys are doubting. They're doubting their ability. They're doubting what's going to happen in the future. They're doubting what's going to take place. They're doubting that they're able. And Jesus says to them, I have all authority. That means I have all authority over every circumstance I'm going to lead you into. I have authority, all the authority from heaven and all the authority for earth. What do you think went through their minds, the 11, try and be one of them for a moment, when Jesus said, I have all authority? You think they start to think to themselves how they've seen Jesus' authority? How he stood before the hypocritical religious leaders of the day confronted their hypocrisy and then people would say, he teaches with authority unlike we've ever seen before. He had authority. Or maybe they thought about that day when they were in the boat and the waves are crashing down and he stands up and he says, be calm. And it's glassy, smooth water. And they think he's got authority over the physical world. Or maybe one of those days in the synagogue where he healed a disease like leprosy and the guy pulled up the leper's hand and all of a sudden it was healed. And they say, he's got, he's got authority over the medical world. 
Or when he cast out a legion of demons, could you imagine? They were there for that. And what's your name? We are many. You know, like what crazy voices came out of him? And Jesus says, cast out into the pigs, flying pigs, guys healed. He's got authority over the spiritual world. Or when he would say sometimes, and you didn't see it, he'd say, I forgive your sins. He had authority over the eternal world. And as they hear him say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You think they just hear an angry parent? I'm going to tell you what to do. No. They're in this moment of doubt. It would be enough for him just to say, because I said so, because he has that kind of authority. But he's speaking into their doubt. And he's saying, I, wherever you go, I've got authority. So let's think about what that means for us. In a couple months, Christians are going to be all up in a tizzy about who's going to be in office in America, whether it's going to be Obama, whether it's going to be Mitt Romney. And you know what? I'll tell you what. God's got authority over every government official. God's got authority over every government. It doesn't matter if it's American or if it's Chinese. Okay, he's got, a gov- he's got authority over everything here on earth. And he's got authority over every circumstance. Regardless of what's going to happen in your health in the days ahead, he's got authority over your health. And he's got authority over weather. And he's got authority over hurricanes and tornadoes and all the stuff that can happen. He's got authority over that. So world practically, what does that mean? It means he's got authority over where you work. He's got authority over your family. He's got authority over your finances. He's got authority over your life. He's got authority over everything you do, whether you teach in the public school or the private school. He's got authority over your boss, whether you're in the hospital or whether you're in a law firm. He's got authority over that. Whether you develop software, whether you're a lawyer, he's got authority over the legal system, over the Supreme Court. God has authority. has authority over you. And that's not just so he can say, because I said so, although he can. He's saying, no, 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 I've got authority in every situation. I will lead you through your life. As you're going, I will lead you through your life, and I'll be there, and I have control. You might not, but I will have control, because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, let me tell you the plan, go make disciples. What does that mean? What does it mean to make a disciple? Very simply, a disciple, the word just simply by itself means a learner. So we got to get a bunch of smart people together and teach them stuff about the Bible. That's not what it means. If you look through the scriptures, what you'll see, there are really four characteristics of a disciple. And you can see it from this passage. You can see it through the flow of scriptures. You go through the book of Acts. A disciple is someone who surrendered their life to Jesus Christ as Savior. They're saved. It's somebody who identifies with Jesus Christ through baptism. They get baptized. They're surrendered. So they're saved. They're surrendered. They're growing. You see, this says to teach, continue teaching them. They're growing in their relationship with Jesus. And how does that happen? We see in Acts chapter 2, it happens through relationships. They would gather together with prayer and fellowship and the apostles' teaching, and they were growing in their relationship with one another. And then you also see that they're reproducing. That once that ends up happening is as they're engaging their world for Christ, God's adding to their number continually. And so a disciple is someone who's saved, who's surrendered, and you see that evidence through baptism and other obedience in the scripture. And then you see that they're growing in their relationship with Jesus, as you see like we have for our encounter groups and our embrace groups, providing opportunity for that. And they're engaging their world for Christ. That's what a disciple looks like. And do you know what's really crazy? Imagine being these 11 guys again. With all their fear and all their doubt and all the stuff that's going on in their hearts, Jesus says, all authority in heaven has been given to me. Make disciples. It's the only command in that passage. Make disciples. And so what do they do? Well, I can't really. It's not my gift. I'm going to cook some food over here and not really ever talk to anybody. I'm behind the scenes and I'm serving. And it's nice stuff. It's good stuff. It's not bad stuff. But I'm never going to fulfill the mission. No, that's not what they do. So Jesus, I just need you to, I'm going to pray about it and you just kind of do it, okay? What's crazy is these guys with all their inadequacy and all their inability and all their fears and all that stuff, they go out and they start making disciples. 
And they start sharing and talking about the one that they love because we naturally talk about who we love. We naturally talk about what we love. And you know who they talk to? They talk to people that aren't just raving fans of Jesus. They talk to people that are open in their recruitment. People that are kind of trying to decide, like, which way should I go? What should I do? So maybe it's Judaism. Maybe it's Christianity. Maybe I don't know. I, I, why would I pick your team? Why would I do this? And they start speaking to those people. They even speak to people that are actually opposed to Christianity. In fact, what you see, if you read the book of Acts, it's the, how does this verse, verses 18, or verses 18 through 20 here in this passage, how do they get lived out, these verses? The book of Acts. If you read the book of Acts, Peter stands up to people who actually nail, physically nailed Jesus to the cross, and he says, you killed God's son. You did it. Is there anybody more opposed? Do you know what they say? What do we do? And he says, you turn to Jesus. It's repentance is the word that's used in Scripture. As you stop, you see what you're doing is wrong, you turn to God. You turn his way. It's a 180-degree deal. And so the, he said, you stop and you turn. And you know, the next thing you do, you get baptized. You identify with Jesus. If you've turned your life towards Jesus, then you get baptized. Then you see what happens in Acts chapter 2. After that, as they start meeting together, it's just natural for believers to then meet together. And they start praying together and sharing with one another and gathering around the apostles' teaching. And then God starts doing this work in them as they live in their world, as they go. And God's adding to their number daily those who are being saved in verse, chapter 2, verse 47. But it says something else right before that. And they had the favor of all the people, Acts 2.47. And God was adding to their number those who are being saved. It's real interesting if you keep reading, because you can stop at that verse and be like, and everybody will love you, and it'll be blessings, and if you just share, then it'll all work out. But they don't have the favor of all the people for very long. Chapter 3, God's changing lives radically and doing something special. Everyone doesn't like that. The Sanhedrin comes to Peter and John, two of the leaders. They're basically the Supreme Court of the day. And they arrest them. And they don't know what to do with him, so they put him in jail. And the next day, they bring him out, and they say, listen, stop telling people about Jesus. And Peter says, we can't. We're not going to stop telling people about Jesus. And then the Supreme Court says back again, you stop telling people about Jesus. <laughs> We're not going to do that. And uh, they send him on their way. This is eventually what ends up happening. <laughs> you do this. No, yep, no, yep. And Terrell goes, where do you think Peter got that idea? All authority has been given to Jesus. Authority over the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter if it's against the law to tell people about Jesus. You still have a mission. It doesn't matter where you live, where you work, where you move, where you have your being, what air that you breathe, the time in human history, you've got a job. You've got a mission, and the plan is clear. And Jesus and, uh, told this to Peter, told it to John, they got it. And then I love what Peter says in verse 20 of Acts chapter 4. He tells them right before this, listen, you can decide whether it's right for us to obey you or God, uh, but we're going to keep telling people about Jesus. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. We have to talk about this. There was something in their heart. There was something that happened because their lives had been changed because they loved the one who had died and rose again. They have to tell people because then they, those people can then be reconciled to God. We have to, it doesn't matter what you do to us. In fact, keep reading the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. They get arrested, they get beaten, and they say, we are praising God because of that because we were counted worthy to be persecuted for the sake of our Savior who died for us because they so loved Jesus. It was their love for God. You see it in other people's lives that have been transformed even beyond just the 11 disciples. You see it in the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a smart dude. He memorized the Pentateuch. He's got, and if you've read the Pentateuch, there's like a bunch of difficult names in there. He memorized that stuff. So he knows all that stuff. You know what he says to the Corinthians? I resolved to know one thing among you, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because he realized what Jesus had done in his life and he so loved Jesus. Philippians chapter three, I wanna know Christ. Wait, you know a bunch of stuff. Yeah, but I want to know Jesus. And I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. 
If that helps me know him better, then I want that. That's how desperately I want to know him. And I want to know somehow to the, the power, the resurrection, that it would actually raise me above my circumstances, that regardless of circumstances, I would trust him and know him so intimately and so deeply. It's because Paul got it. And he pleads with the Corinthians later about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 19, he starts speaking to them. And he says to them uh, that God's reconciling the world to himself, all people to himself. And he's not counting men's sins against them. See, we would never come up with that plan. And he's committed to us. What? You know how messed up you are. I know how messed up I am. He's made a commitment to us. He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Yes, he's put this message in jars of clay and fragile and broken beings to share with the world that God, that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. A little pause there. Do you know what that means? That means that if you're a parent in your home, beyond just being a mom or a dad, you're God's representative to your kids. That means that if you are a lawyer in the courtroom, beyond just defending your client, you're actually an ambassador, you're a representative for Jesus Christ before that judge, for your client, for that jury, for whoever it is you come into contact with. If you're a doctor, you don't work for Rex Hospital, UNC Hospital, Duke Hospital, you know who your real employer is? It's God. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor, a nurse, or a receptionist, whatever your role is there, you're God's ambassador sent into those places to represent him. Look at what the passage says. As though God were making his appeal through us. How crazy of a plan is that? We wouldn't come up with that plan. And so Paul says, we implore you on Christ's behalf because we speak for him because we're his ambassadors. Be reconciled to God. And then he gives the message, the next verse. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. What? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How does that happen, God? What an amazing story. And our mission is to tell it. Why would we tell it? Not just because he said so, because we love him. And if you love him, you love what he loves. And you know what God loves? He loves people. In fact, he loves all people. For God so loved the world. He's not talking about a ball of dirt. He's talking about everybody. He's talking about gay people and straight people. He's talking about Islamic people and Christian people. He's talking about all people. He loves all the people. Doesn't mean they'll all be reconciled to him. Doesn't mean they're all saved. Doesn't mean they've all trusted Christ. Doesn't mean that, but it means he loves them all. He loves all people. And you know who will be reconciled? Whoever comes. That whoever believes in him will have everlasting, eternal life. It's for all people. It's the invitation out there for everybody. It's whoever will come. And you see Jesus continually through the scripture inviting people to come. He tells Peter at the edge of the boat, you come. Come walk off the edge of the boat. All who are weary and burdened, come. Come to me. All who are weary and burdened. Anybody who needs forgiveness, come. I love what he says in Revelation chapter 22. The Spirit says this in Revelation chapter 22. The Spirit and the bride, the church, say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift, the water of life. Whoever will respond, come. And some of you, that's what you need to do today. You haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior. You need to come to Jesus Christ. He became your sin. Your sin that you've done that separated you from God, he took all that on. It's not about you being good enough. He took all that because he loves you. God loves all people. Believer, do you love all people? You know what Jesus or Peter says uh, through, by the power of the Spirit in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9? So the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slow. He's talking about Jesus returning. And sometimes we think about it like it's the stuff that needs to happen in the newspaper. No, no, no. He's waiting for people to repent. He says, He is patient with you, not, waiting for any, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to a saving knowledge of his Son, Jesus Christ, to stop doing what they're doing and to turn to him and what he's done. That's, that's what he wants. Who's it for? Everyone that will come. Who does he love? Whosoever will come. It's every person. 
And so the question for us as believers then is do we love who he loves? And generally speaking, I know everyone in here, would, even if you're not a Christian, you'd probably say, yes, we love people. You don't want people, even if, whether you believe in heaven and hell, so that there is a heaven, you don't want people going to hell. How, how mad and mean do you have to be to do that? Of course you love people. Like in general, we love people, but do we love all people? Do you love people who don't agree with you? Do you love people that, that annoy you? Do you love people that, that maybe, you, if I, could I pick like the worst people that we classify in our society? Do you love terrorists? Do you love rapists, child molesters? Like pick whatever it is the category, murderers. See, God loves all these people. He wants them all to be reconciled to him. Many of us, the way we look at it is this. They deserve to go to hell. And do you know what underlies that? Is that somehow we've earned God's grace. Do you know what the truth is? We all deserve to go to hell. We all deserve that he would just wipe us out by his wrath. But because he loves us, because he loves us, we get to love him. Because we've come to him. And then he wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to love what he loves. You know what he loves? Your neighbor. Everybody you come into contact with. Every person in your life. He loves everybody. You know, that's great news for us as a church. Because we cast this vision that we want to see 10,000 lives transformed in the next 10 years. And that means for every person to pick 10 people that you're praying for, that you're sharing with, that you're caring about, that you're encouraging, that you're inviting to church, that you're telling the gospel to, that all that stuff, that you'd have those 10 people. And you know what? The problem might be that our vision's too small. Because if he loves every person, do you know what that means? He loves every person in Raleigh. He loves every person in Durham. He loves every person in Cary, every person in Garner, every person in Apex, every person in Holly Springs, even the people on Chapel Hill, like that seems farther out there. All those people, he loves them all. There's more than 10,000. And we ask you the question, well, who's your 10? Who are you going to love intentionally? This is a very intentional plan, make disciples. Why do we do it? Because we love him and because we love people. But I want to make it more, more personal today. If we're going to reach 10 people in 10 years, do you know what that means? That means one person a year. I'm not a math guy either. It means one person a year for the next 10 years. <laughs> Can you believe I figured all that out? And so the question becomes, who's your one? Who's the one person that you're going to be intentional about over this next year? Maybe it's one of those people that comes up on the radar that you think, well, they deserve it. Maybe it's a parent that you're angry at. Maybe it's somebody else that's in your neighborhood that just bugs you. Maybe it's, I don't know. God can speak to your heart and tell you who the person is. Who's your one? Who's the one that you'll pray for? Who's the one that you will care for? Who's the one that you will encourage? Who's the one that you will go out of your way to serve? Like last week's passage in John 13, the washing of the feet. Who metaphorically will you wash their feet? to show the full extent of Jesus' love. Who will you tell the truth to because of the one that you love and you love them? Who's your one? Why? Because we love God, not because it's an assignment. And it could be enough that it's an assignment, but it's more than that. It's because we love him. It's because we love them. So who will you be intentional about? And not only does he tell us the plan, the what, Make disciples. None of them tell us the why, and it would be enough to say because I said so, but he tells us all throughout Scripture because you're supposed to love me and you're supposed to love people. But he tells us how in this passage. He tells us how to do it. He says, therefore, go. And it doesn't look like a participle in the English because we're trained that in, in English, a participle has an ing at the end. This is a participle. This is therefore, go. As you're going in the world, as you go to the hospital, as you go to the coffee shop, as you go to the school, as you go to your home, your neighborhood, all those places, you make disciples and you go around the world of all nations. And what do you do? You baptize them. That means you share the gospel with them so they trust Jesus Christ, then they identify with Jesus, and then you teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. God continues to work in your life beyond your salvation. So your story isn't just about the day you trusted Jesus. 
You continue to grow, and as you're learning, you continue to share those things with other people. That's how this happens. And so practically, what does this look like? I'll tell you practically how this looks is that we'll all pick somebody this year. We'll pick one, and we'll pray for our one, and we'll serve our one, and love our one, encourage our one, all that stuff. But this is a team sport. And if you're in the kingdom, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, your Savior, we're all on the same team. One spirit, one Lord, one baptism is what the scripture tells us. So we're unified. We've got one mission. And I don't care how much you share with somebody. I don't care how many people you prayed with. There's never been a person who's solely responsible for someone else's salvation. It's never been because of a message I've preached and someone trusts Jesus. I've never been solely responsible. It's not because somebody you prayed with. You've never been solely responsible. Evangelism, discipleship is a team sport. Let me tell you how it works. There's a woman in our church told me I could share her story. Her name's Nancy Willingham. Nancy started coming to our church a couple years ago because her daughter invited her. She had moved here from Georgia, and her daughter invited her to come to Southbridge. She'd get to know some new people and get in church and some of those types of things. And so she encouraged her to come. And because it was her daughter, she came on a Mother's Day. Isn't that sweet? You know, Mom comes to church on Mother's Day, and she hears a message that I preached on forgiveness. And Nancy will tell you she had never forgiven anyone in her life up until that point. And it wasn't because she had never been wronged. And she can tell all the details of her story. But as she heard this message on forgiveness, she started to get interested in the Bible, interested in church stuff. She continued to attend Southbridge. Eventually, her daughter encouraged her to go to one of our community groups. Now we call them our embrace groups, but people meeting in homes, living out the one another's scripture. She decided to go. She said when she went there, she experienced the same warmth and the same greeting and the same love that she experienced when she comes walking in the door here on Sunday morning. But she noticed something about all these people. They all had a Bible. And she didn't have a Bible. And so she felt a little out of place. And she didn't even know if she owned a Bible. If it was, it was packed away somewhere at her house. And they all sat down and they were going to go through and, and talk about the message from that Sunday morning. And they just had some questions. They had their Bibles out and they get ready. And then the couple whose home it was at, David and Prue Kawasaki, they were just being kind. They were being nice. And so they said, well, tell us a little bit about yourself, Nancy. Let's get to know you. You know what she shares? She says, I am a long lost soul. She said, I don't even have a Bible. Prue Kawasaki, the hostess that night, gets up, does what would be common courtesy. She goes and gets a book off the bookshelf. It's a Bible, and she hands it to her, to Nancy. And Nancy said when she left that night, she cried the whole way home. She couldn't believe that these people gave her a Bible. <laughs> we should do that, right? Just natural Christian hospitality. Great job, Prue. And then what ends up happening is she continues to listen to the message. She continues to hear stuff here on Sunday morning, and, and there's a woman that comes up to her named Judy Ham. Roger and Judy Ham are in that same community group. Walks up to Nancy after a Sunday one time. We were talking about salvation, talking about knowing Jesus, and says, uh, Nancy, do you, do you know if you're saved? She says, I don't know, I think so. It's kind of Christian language to say saved. And, and so she says it another way that's more like just human language. And she says, do you know if you died today where you'd spend eternity? And she said, well, I think probably heaven. And so Judy was very kind, and she gave her some information, some stuff she could read that showed her how she could know she could have a relationship with Jesus because Jesus had died for her sins. And it's already been taken care of, but she has to trust Jesus, place her faith in Jesus. And it showed at the end of the little information, here's what you do. You pray to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And Nancy said she read that and she thought to herself, it, it can't be that easy. Like, just pray and tell God what I believe. And, and it just seemed too easy for her. And so she didn't want to trust Jesus. And she went on a year journey that she'll now tell you the real reason wasn't because it was too easy. The real reason was because she didn't feel worthy to have Jesus die for her. You know what? That's true. She wasn't worthy to have Jesus die for her. And neither are you and neither am I. But he did it. And he did it because he loves us. And so as she's going through this journey, she decided to set up a meeting with our counseling, our shepherding pastor, Jason Tovey, who does a bunch of our counseling as a church. And so she goes in to talk to him. And she sits down in the office. She starts talking to him about this. 
And he shares with her the invitation. Nancy, come to Jesus. He's saying to you, come. And if you're thirsty, come. And if you're weary and burdened, come. And if you need forgiveness, come. And he shares with her the gospel again. And in his office, she bows her heart before Jesus and trusts Jesus as her Savior. It's awesome. And then in that same community group, she meets a couple, Jim and Kathleen Hendren, who lead our Celebrate Recovery ministry, and they invite her to come to Celebrate Recovery, and they're getting to know her, and they're getting to know her story, and they just ask her, just pour some coffee and set up some stuff for people for hospitality, because she's been touched by hospitality, right? And so she does this, and while she's there, she starts to deal with her issues of codependency and unforgiveness, and now she's leading a small group in our Celebrate Recovery ministry. They meet on Thursday nights. If anybody's interested, you can be a part of that. But what's happened in her life is that she continues to grow, and she told me that last Father's Day, I preached on forgiveness again. And God worked in her heart in such a way that she finally forgave her father for abandoning her. God continues to work in her life. So let me ask you this question. Who gets credit? Is it the daughter who invited her? Or is it Judy Ham who shared the gospel? Or is it Jason who prayed with her? Is it some message that I preached? Or is it the Kawasaki's for leading the group and showing her the love of Christ? You see how this happens as a team sport. If you were to ask any of them, if Nancy was their one, it'd probably be the daughter. His daughter loved Nancy. I'm sure prayed for Nancy, encouraged Nancy. But they weren't the ones to get the lead them to lead her to Christ. So who's one? And yeah, that doesn't matter. It's a team sport. Who's your one? Who's your Nancy? Who is it that you love so much you want to see them in the kingdom? Who is it that you love so much you can't imagine the idea of them sending eternity separated from God? Who is it that you want them to experience what you've experienced? See, that's God's plan. And how do you do it? Oh, he puts you in places where you live. He decided exactly where you would live in human history, where you move, exactly where you work, and all the places you go, where you live and where you have your being. Acts chapter 17, you can read that on your own. And he gives us the plan. Here's how you're supposed to live your life, make disciples. But he gives us more than just a plan. And just real briefly, he just says it at the end of this passage, real briefly, there's more than just a plan, there's also a promise. Look at the promise at the end of verse 20. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely... Now, remember who's saying this. These are red letters for those of you who have a red letter Bible. It's the guy who has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's the guy who died and then rose himself from the dead. It's the one who was part of creation. He spoke it into existence. You can bank on this. He says, I promise. And surely, 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 I am with you always to the very end of the age. So not only does he give us a plan, he gives us a promise and the promise is his presence. You know how important that's been to us as a church. If you were here when we preached the encounter message a couple weeks ago, I told you that when the church started, my wife and I, we began to pray from Exodus chapter 33. If you don't go, we don't want to go. We don't want to go to North Carolina. If you're not going to go with us, if you're not going to make it clear that your hand is on us, if you're not going to make it clear that you show up, we don't want to be there. Do you know why I believe that God's presence has been so clear to us as a church? because we're so focused on the mission. He promises his special presence when we fulfill the mission. Now, we all know God's present everywhere all the time, right? He's omnipresent. All that's true. So what he's saying here is he's promising, I'll show up. I'll be with you. I'll go with you when you're living on mission for me. And you'll see me work. You can't do it. You should doubt yourself. In fact, you don't have the gifts. You don't have the abilities. You should be afraid. The circumstances, you probably won't be able to handle some of them. People will ask questions you can't answer. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I got this. It doesn't matter what the laws are. It doesn't matter what the rules are. I got a job for you. And by the way, if you do your job, I'll show up. I'll be there. I'll manifest myself and my manifest presence will be there 
you'll see, and the only answer will be me, because then I get the glory. Who do we baptize in the name of? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not Judy Ham, not Jason Tovey, not Scott, not Peru Kawasaki, not and the daughter who invited. God's the one who's doing the work. I promise that I'll show up. So you're a believer. The question for you today is simply this. Do you love Jesus more than you love a football team? More than you love your family, your finances, whatever you get passionate about talking about, cooking, food, more than any of that stuff, do you love Jesus? We naturally talk about what we love. And do you love people? Who's your one? Who will you pray for? Who will you serve? Who will you share with? Who will you love? And finally, if you're not a believer, like maybe you believe in God, but you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, will you come? Will you come to Jesus tonight? Maybe you've been around for a while and you've heard the stuff and maybe you're religious and you're cleaning up your act and you believe the Bible and learn all this stuff and it's great. But you know what? If you don't know Jesus, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You never surrendered your life to me. And today maybe you need to acknowledge your sin before him and ask him to be your savior. That's what you need to do. And beyond just your one, you'll see if you're not already in an embrace group or an an encounter group, We've also got in your worship program what we call engage groups. Maybe God's done something unique in your life or you've got a specific passion. If you've got a passion for kids who've been abandoned or a passion for kids who've lost a parent or have gone through difficult times, then you've got an engage group that specifically works with them. That's in your worship program, the Hope Reigns engage group. Maybe uh, you've got an issue where when you were having your first kids or maybe you made a bad decision or whatever, there was a pregnancy issue and, and you want to be there for other people that are in those difficult crossroad type moments. We've got a, an engage group called the Gateway Engage Group. Maybe you just like to talk to people. Maybe you're extroverted and you want to do this stuff. And you know what? There's an engaged group that's led by the Hendrons. You can read about it in there. Gone on Moore Square. Just have intentional conversations with people about Jesus. And there's multiple others that you can read about in there. We're called to engage our world for Christ. That's the plan. Let's pray. Father God, I come before you on behalf of those who have a relationship with you, and I just pray that you'd speak to hearts however you need to. Those that are sharing their faith, those that are in love with you or passionate about you, I pray this would just be a word of encouragement. For those of us who love things more than we love you, I pray that you would rebuke us and correct us and drive us to repentance. God, I pray that you'd be the supreme love in our lives and it would be evident by the way that we live and the things that we do. And Father God, I pray for any that don't know your son Jesus Christ as Savior today that they would come to you. Here's the deal. With everybody with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, you can trust Jesus Christ right now. It's this simple. You acknowledge your sin. We all have sin. The Bible says that every person has sinned. In human history, every human being has sinned, except for Jesus. Because Jesus was not only human, he was fully God. And he died to pay for that sin. If you acknowledge your sin and believe that Jesus died for that sin, then here's the hard part. You trust him. You surrender to him. It's simple words, but it's very difficult because you're trusting Jesus Christ with your eternal destiny. But if you want to do that today, if you want to trust Jesus, receive his forgiveness, receive his love, surrender your life to him, then will you just pray this prayer with me? I'm going to pray a prayer that just acknowledges sin and ask Jesus to be Savior. And if you want to do that with the heads bowed and eyes closed, will you just pray this prayer? Father God, I acknowledge my sin before you. And my sin has separated me from you. And maybe even in your heart, you name some of that sin, that you know what it is that separated you from God. And you're not worthy to receive his love, but he loved you anyways. So will you pray this? And Father, I, I believe your son Jesus died for me. And I want to receive your forgiveness today. I want to receive your son, Jesus Christ, to be my Savior. And today I ask Jesus to be my Savior. And if you did that, would you mark that on your connection card before you leave today? We've got people who want to pray for you. We've got a gift we want to give you. If you want to talk with someone else, we've got a response team that's down here. In fact, would you mind raising your hand if you just prayed that prayer with me? If everybody else has their heads bowed and their eyes closed, would you just pop your hand up? 
I want a response team to be able to pray for you. They don't have to come to you or anything like that, but would you just pop your hand up? And the lights are bright, so if you'd pop it up high, that would be great for us. Just raise your hand, and the response team can see that and pray for you. And Father, I pray that you would use each one of us that are part of the team already, that are already in relationship with you to engage our world for your son, Jesus Christ. Please put a face in our mind of the one that you want us to reach this year. In Jesus' name, amen.